am Dr. Laura Blankenship, head of school at San Francisco Girls School, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast, Innovative Insights, where we'll talk with leaders, creators, and educators to explore innovative practices and ideas that are shaping the future of industry, education, society, and more. And today I'd like to welcome our very first guest, Dr. Joan Fallon. Dr. Joan Fallon is founder and CEO of CureMark, a biopharmaceutical company focused on the development of novel therapies to treat serious diseases for which there are limited treatment options. She is considered a visionary scientist who has dedicated her life's work to championing the health and well-being of children worldwide. Dr. Fallon holds over 300 patents, has written numerous scholarly articles, and lectures extensively across the globe on pediatric developmental problems. She is a senior advisor to the Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute, as well as a distinguished fellow at the Athena Center for Leadership at Barnard College. She is also a member of the Board of Trustees of Franklin and Marshall College and the Pratt Institute. Dr. Fallon is the recipient of numerous awards, including being named one of the top 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs of 2020 by Goldman Sachs and 2017 EY Entrepreneur of the Year New York in healthcare, and she received the Creative Entrepreneurship Award from the New York Hall of Science in 2018. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Joan today. It takes us everywhere from women in business and in leadership, empathy, sports, advice to young women, education. It's really great and I think you're really gonna love it. So without further ado, here we go. So I am here with Dr. Joan Fallon, who has just written a book called Goodbye Status Quo, Reimagining the Landscape of Innovation. And I'm very excited to talk to her about the book. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. So the book actually is a compilation of, of, of things that I have written about over the course of my entrepreneurial journey. But as things began to emerge uh, in the middle of the pandemic and then as it started to come out the other side, it was clear to me that there was so much uncertainty in the world that people were really struggling with it. And I think a lot of the book deals with the fact that the premise of sort of entrepreneurial journey is that everything's uncertain. Right. And so I thought maybe some of those things would actually be helpful at this time now. So that's why now. Great. Um, So one of the things that you write about that I love and that we talk about a lot at uh, San Francisco Girls School is empathy and the role that that has to play in being a leader and maybe in addressing some of that uncertainty in the world. So tell me about your thoughts about empathy and how you use it as a leader or how you think it's important to innovation? So I think that, um, I think it's core to both innovation and leadership. So leadership to me, and indeed some of the working definitions of leadership is that a leader solves problems. And I truly believe you cannot solve a problem unless you start with empathy. And really what that's about is being able to look at what someone else is feeling or experiencing uh, about their life or what it is that you think needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, leaders 
think that something has to change or that here's the place that you solve the problem. When indeed, if they look at it from the person's point of view on the other side, they realize that that's not the problem at all. And I think that's a really key thing. And I learned that by going to the D school at Stanford, Mm -hmm. where the first thing they do is they throw you into a situation where there are many problems to solve. And for us, it was the terminal, uh, one of the terminals in San Francisco uh, at SFO and trying to figure out what it is that people needed in the, in the airport. It wasn't anything that I thought it was. Uh, all right. So I thought it was, you know, the, the schedules of the planes and waiting so long, et cetera. But people didn't really, when we interviewed people, that didn't, they took that kind of a, as a granted that weather and other things interfere, but the experience that they were having at the airport was really key. And so some of the things that we thought of or that other classes had thought of solving these problems are actually in the airports today, like the the little nursing stations where you can, the little booths where you can nurse your child or, uh, you know, pet relief areas, uh, water bottle fillers, uh, lots of things that we we looked at as students there um, uh, are now our reality. Yeah, I was just in the San Francisco airport recently. And yeah, those are, it's, it's a great experience to be there. So it's interesting that you all contributed to that. I think the younger generation is all about experiential things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's really important. And, and even in education, I think the experiential piece is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having, having an experience that you can relate to and take back and think about and reflect on. Yes, absolutely. Even in the airport. Even in the airport. Well, who knew, right? That yeah. waiting wasn't the problem. Might have been the problem for me, but it wasn't the problem for most everyone else. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so obviously COVID kind of, I don't wouldn't say inspired us, but um, created this greater need, I think, for empathy, um, especially in the business world. I mean, we're coming out of it now, but I know uh, in my previous work as a leader in another school, and even now in my current situation, leaders need to really have some empathy for the people that worked for them and their communities. Have you seen that be um, really important in your work or seen other leaders really having to grapple with empathy maybe for the first time because of COVID or use it more because of the COVID situation? Now, that's a great question. I think that COVID uncovered a lot of the inequities that we have as a culture here uh, in the U.S. and probably even globally. But I think that being able to uncover some of those pieces allowed for greater empathy to come in. So, for example, I'm a um, on the uh, board at a, a charter school in New York City called the Dream School, and most of those children get two meals a day at school. Now school's closed because of the pandemic. What do you do? You say, oh, well, you'll have to figure that out for yourselves. No, you have to understand that those two meals are important to those children. So the food service and the school came together and they were able to uh, provide uh, grab and go meals for all those students. Um, and, and so there's lots of things like that. Or right. the fact that, the children did not have internet service at home. Right. 
They didn't, maybe didn't have their, maybe there's one device, maybe there's one computer or even one cell phone. Lots of kids use the internet on their parents' cell phones. And so being able to provide them with a machine of some sort, a device and internet was really, really important. Right. So lots of things that you don't think about necessarily, all of a sudden you have to think about them. Right. Right. And when those things surface and thinking about the two examples that you just gave, it makes people realize the importance of schools and that those might have been things that pre and post COVID need to stay in place and make sure that those things are not just in schools, but maybe, you know, there's a digital divide among a lot of students. So making sure everybody has good access to the internet and devices that they can use and not having to share with parents or siblings. Does that feel like that was an important outcome? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I wasn't thinking about how much internet access someone had at home because they weren't required to have it for school. And so the question became, oh, wow, how do I help with that? Or the fact that it's a, it's a need, how can I help fulfill it? And if you don't know it's a need, then you can't do anything about it. So I think right. uncovering all of those things. So for example, um, some of the most vulnerable people, in the, especially in the early part of the pandemic, were public service people, people who mm. worked, you know, on the who drove buses or who ran the subways or who cleaned the buildings or all of those things. So not only were they on the front lines, but extra things were asked of them. Right. The cleaning protocols were different. Uh, the fact that they had to go to work. How how do you how do you account for everyone who works in that building, you know, in a company can stay home and work, but that person had to be in the in the building. Right. So there was a lot of things that I don't think people actually thought, you know, thought about or access to even the vaccines as people were looking for vaccines. There are neighborhoods that don't have a CVS or a pharmacy. Right. Where did you get that vaccine? So lots of things were really uncovered uh, uh, by the pandemic. Right. And so do you think that some of those things were addressed or, and either temporarily or permanently? Are some of those changes that happened over the pandemic um, or issues that became visible, have they been resolved? What's going to really change after the pandemic? That's a good question. I think everybody wants to go back to the way things were. But I don't mm -hmm. think anything will ever go back to the way things were. And in some cases, that's good. In some cases, maybe it's not so good. But I think it's what we have. Um, I live in Westchester County uh, in New York. They rose to the occasion uh, in terms of, for example, the vaccine out rollout and just opened up the county center uh, and had vaccines there for everyone. And you could go and get them. And uh, there's transportation if you needed it. Uh, they made sure the seniors got preference. I mean, it was really done well. Uh, they actually erected sort of temporary hospitals as well, uh, which was a little scary. They never got used, but they, they were there. Um, and so some, I think municipalities probably rose to the occasion and others did not. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we learned a lot of lessons uh, around it. And I think that that's an important part for going forward. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like healthcare in particular got a little more accessible during the pandemic um, through the opening of centers and just a greater awareness about how to get care um, 
and telehealth got more popular and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the medical establishment has been, has been been bucking the telemedicine trend or desire, um, and uh, it was valuable, right? It was inordinately valuable. Yeah, I mean, it made my my life easier, and I have pr- really good access to healthcare. But just as a busy working person, you know, being able to hop on a quick call with your doctor and and right. get something resolved easily is great. And right. I hope that continues. Um, yeah, there's nothing like, in, as, as, you know, there's nothing like in person seeing the patient, right? Absolutely. Children. But yeah, but in lieu of nothing, it was it was so much better. And I think yeah. it will open the door to, you know, sort of uh, looking at something that's simple to look at as opposed to something more complex where it's better to see the doctor in person. Exactly. But I think that there's there's more more of that going to happen. That's great. Yeah. What about in the business world? You know, there's remote work and hybrid work and all kinds of things that have changed in the, you know, in the, in the business world and the economy. Do you think some of those will stay with us or will we gradually get back to everybody goes to the office and hybrid work not there anymore? I don't think, I think the jury's still out. I think that lots of of big businesses like the big banks here in New York, et cetera, have pushed to have their people back um, because it's not the same, especially when you're trying to mentor young young people in the business world. It's very hard to do over a Zoom. Absolutely. And so I think that sort of that give and take, the idea generation happens in person. Um, and the actual constant scheduling of a conversation it gives it sort of a stilted um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cadence. But um, I do think that lots of business went on on, on Zoom. And I think lots mm-hmm. of business will go on on Zoom. I think that there is an ability to uh, be more global that way, right? right. And not so much travel um, because you can't easily reach people this way um, uh, with a global perspective. But I I don't see a substitute for being in person. I also think that some people have integrated their personal life more. There's, there's less of a demarcation between their personal life and their business life. It's kind of their life, mm-hmm. right? And I think employers aren't quite used to that yet. Right. Because, you know, it, it before, if they were going to have a furniture delivered, it would be, I have to take time off to do that. Now it's like, oh, I'll work from home. You know, so it's, it's a it's a different kind of, of way of looking at the world. Right. Or when individuals were, um, had to be home because their children were home. And again, again, I think that that actually made a larger divide between the genders. Right. Because women were in the work in the workforce, and they they're the ones that ended up staying home mostly with the kids right. and helping with their schoolwork. Yeah, so I think that did not help anything. No, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting um, problem. And of course, there's a lot of articles that have been written uh, about that issue that more women resigned during the pandemic than men did, or stepped back to part time to deal with children. Right. Uh, and some people are worried about the long-term impacts of that and have said, we've basically gone back to the seventies in terms of where women were in the workforce. I haven't looked at the numbers. I don't know if that's, um, 
true or has potential. Does that worry you, that trend? Because it feels trend? more like the 50s, actually, than the 70s. Okay. <laughs> it, feels, it feels like, you know, the my mom was always a working person. Mm-hmm. So I had a different kind of role model. But none of my friends' mothers worked, pretty much, unless they taught right. school and were home at 3 o'clock. Right. But uh, that was a very unusual thing back then. And so, um, yeah, that, that concerns me because yeah. women are not back in the workforce like they were. Right, right. And, you know, I know you you talk a little bit about um, being a, a woman entrepreneur in your book. And obviously, if you're going to be a woman entrepreneur or woman leader, CEO, you need to be in the workforce or have that work experience. And so if they're not there, are you worried that there will be a backwards trend in terms of women taking those leadership roles and what could we do to, um, you know, make that better? That's a great question. And I hadn't really considered it in that, in that form, but yes, I think that uh, we need some universal childcare. We, Mm -hmm. we absolutely need to have that. I think that we've been fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. But I think that's another thing that we absolutely need is -hmm. to make sure that everyone has equal opportunity because you, you then start say, okay, well, this person can afford to get uh, childcare so they can go into the workforce. But this individual can't do that because what they will make is not as much as they need for the childcare. So they stay home. Right. So there's that trade-off. And I think we need to be thinking about that. Um, in this country, we, we tend to, to want to shun anything that's universal. Right. Uh, you know, Medicare <laughs> for all and, and those things. But I think that um, we, we need to look at that and universal pre-K, uh, right. which I think is also an, an important thing, not just for families and working moms, et cetera, but also for the child. Mm-hmm. I think getting that early start uh, in terms of socialization and other things is really, really important. Right, right. So you, um, so there's childcare as one barrier for some women. What are, what are some of what barriers did you face as a woman entrepreneur and what barriers do you think still exist and, or, and what has come down that what has gotten better? So I think that there is a, um, there's still a lot of divide, right? So for example, the amount of venture capital that women get is, is just a pittance compared Mm -hmm. to what, what the men get. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are, there are natural barriers to that. And then there are some artificial ones. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the natural barriers, which I think will come down, has already come down and it's coming down more, is the fact that women did not play team sports in the same way that that men did or children, right? Mm -hmm. The boys Mm -hmm. had team sports that they played and the girls didn't always have team sports, especially across the country. Now they do. And right. it's not only uh, it's not only something that is accepted, but it's actually revered. And so there's less differentiation. And uh, I was about a couple of years ago, I was in front of my building where I live here in Westchester. And uh, there's a hotel that's attached next door. And my nephew came to visit me, who at the time was you know, I don't know, 17, maybe. Mm-hmm. And he goes, look, look at Joan over there. And I said, let's see this woman walking with her backpack on. I'm like, yeah. He said, don't you know what that is? 
I said, uh, no. And he knows I'm a real sports person. He said, that's Elena yeah. Delazan. She's probably the best basketball player on the earth. And I was like, huh, okay. And I said, do you want to go meet her? He's like, no, 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 no. I said, but just, <laughs> I just, like, there she is. I'm like, okay. So the fact that he had that awareness, he's a big basketball guy. The fact that he had that awareness and that reverence for a female basketball player yeah. just changes the game, right? Yeah. A whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Saying that she's the best basketball player ever right. wouldn't have happened 20 years ago, right? No. And even now, you know, with Serena Williams starting to, you know, her career starting right. to to wane, uh, you know, and as she talks about it, et cetera, to hear someone like John McEnroe say she's the best tennis player that ever lived. Wow. And for him to say yeah. that on multiple broadcasts, to continue to say it long before she decided that she was going to sort of retire. That's amazing. Yeah. He wouldn't have said that 30 years ago. Yeah. But he has, you know, he, it's a different perspective now. Yeah. So do you think the elevation of, of those people, women in sports and the um, ability of women to play uh, team sports and have that experience helps them be entrepreneurs or helps people think of them, uh, in different ways. Uh, well, I think, you know, I, I kind of highlighted the the reverence for it, but really it's an ability to work with other pe people. Mm -hmm. And they've done a couple of studies recently that talk about, was it 60 or 70% of, of, of women CEOs, especially in the Fortune 500, all played a team sport. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. 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 And I think yeah. that's important because you learn to trust other people, mm -hmm. rely on other people. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we we often see. And right. now even there was a I don't know if you saw the clip about the young uh, uh, teams that were trying to get into the uh, World Series, the Little League World Series. Right, and one that. young guy hit another one who was at bat in the head. Ooh. And he went down and he ultimately got up after a while, walked to first base. And the pitcher was so shaken that he saw the guy get on first base and then he just burst into tears on the mound. Mm -hmm. The first base young man who got hit went over to the mound and hugged him. Now, you would not have seen that before. No. And it made the whole thing much better. Like yeah. the, they, they interviewed both the boys. They didn't know, really know each other, but they interviewed them and said, we're gonna be friends for life now. Yeah. And he saw how much pain I was in and it was able to comfort me during my pain. Yeah. So it was well, th those kind of empathy is really important, yeah. I think. Yeah, I was about to say that is a really um good example of real empathy. Right. Yeah. 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 So um thinking about women again and their um, you know, you're obviously in the STEM field yourself. Uh and do you think that there that it is there's still there's barriers to women and leadership. It's getting a little bit better. STEM is another place where women um, have had have seen some barriers. Do you feel like that's getting better? How do we address sort of the lack of women in certain STEM fields? So I think that there are multiple reasons why women don't go into STEM. And I think that we have to make sure that we address all of them um, uh, over time. Right. And so, um, and I think, and I'll give you an example. 
I was on a search committee for a college president. And one of the um, individuals that we interviewed was a, um, a STEM professor at, at another college and uh, had a distinguished career. And uh, I, I said to her, with all these big smiles, I said, what's it going to feel like to be a college president and be in STEM? And she looks at me and she says, I'm not in STEM. And I said, what do you mean you're not in STEM? He said, well, I'm an administrator now. I'm not in STEM. And what I think was interesting was that, and I don't, I don't know whether she looked at it as a negative being an administrator, that she was formerly a professor. I don't know, but that's who you are, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going to bring mm-hmm. that perspective with you to being a college president. Yeah. And she is today a college president, right? So she's going to have that, that STEM piece and and uh, when she was had a, the next interview, she told the people who interviewed her that she thought about that question every day since I asked huh. it. Huh. So I think that women tend to compartmentalize themselves too, mm, and I right. think it's really important that that uh, that we don't do that, and also that we take some ownership in what we do. Mm-hmm. We don't always take the ownership that we need to. Right. Around our um, our own work. And right. I think that, you know, we, we know all the examples like uh, Watson and Crick won the Nobel Prize, but the woman that did the work didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things. And I think that those are, are sort of, you know, real issues, which women have less of today, but they still don't take ownership for what they do. I know I struggle right. to take ownership for what I've created. And, and you know, I don't think of myself as being shy or any of those things. But I, I think that taking it in a public way is what women tend not to do. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to take more ownership uh, of that. Right. We need to patent more. We need yeah. to say, this is our invention. I did this. This is mine. Right. And right. and I think women tend to think, well, it's not mine. You know, it's going to belong to everybody. People are going to benefit from it. But it's like, it's mine. Right. right. I think that's right. a very hard thing to say. And sometimes yeah. even my saying it just now is hard to say. This yeah. is mine. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think uh, makes it so hard for women to do that? So I think part of it is the sort of, of um, I, I don't know how else to say, it, but I think women tend to take a more universal view of themselves and what they do mm-hmm. and can multitask really well. But I also think that historically in this country, women have not been able to have their own economy, mm. uh, you know, until the mid 1800s, mm-hmm. whereas other places like Russia, you know, other other places that we don't think of as being progressive, actually women had their uh, had the, um, the they had their own economy. So. For example, in our in our U.S. Constitution, patents are written into the Constitution, and indeed, it's one of the most egalitarian processes that we have in this country, because it doesn't matter what your gender is or your age, none of that matters. It just matters if what you have invented is novel, mm-hmm. you can get a patent. But and that you know, I think that that was in the late 1700s where that actually you know, the first patent was granted, a woman, a 
patent to a woman was granted maybe uh, 30 years or 40 years later in the early 1800s. It actually was for a hat. But but she couldn't own the money she made from it. Right. So she can be the inventor, but she could not be the assignee because it had to be a male. Right. And so I think women were not used to having their own economy. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and think about it. women couldn't have. I, I mean, it's unthinkable now, but women couldn't have credit cards till the. 1960s. No, I know. My mother. I remember when she was finally able to have her own credit card and her own individual bank account. You know, it was Mrs. You know, whatever at, for right. years, and it right. was a. It was a. She was very. She kept the books for my family. You know, she was managing all of the financial. I learned how to do. You know double entry accounting from my mom and um, she, but she couldn't have her own checking account. You know, she was, and I remember when she got it and it was like an amazing moment. Um, In a a country where you couldn't have a credit card till the 1960s, my mother was, you know, she had a very, very big job for when she was young. She made a lot of money compared to my father, but she couldn't have a credit card. That's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, And I, yeah, it does feel like that has had a lasting impact on how women feel about their relationship to participating in the global economy as a, in whatever way they choose to do that, um, that they, there's still that feeling, lack of ownership feeling that is hard to overcome. Yeah. And I think too, that this generation, this young generation, they do not have a sense of history. History is not important to them. Mm. And and uh, last night I was with my nephew who's 21 and he's writing a bunch of music and he had some chords that he was playing. And I said, you know who that sounds like? He's like, who? I said, Barry Manilow. He's like, who's that? Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my goodness. I said, look it up. And what he what he then realized was I was talking about the catchiness of the of the chords, mm-hmm. right, and the progression of the chords, and then he realized that he wrote jingles and he wrote right. commercials. Yeah, like, oh, I get it now. I get what you're trying to say to me, but there's no sense of a history. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think going to be problematic in, in the long run. Yeah, uh, interesting. Um, how do we so? good segue to talking about education and how do we, um, what are the things that educators need to be thinking about as we look to the future and think about how do we um, deal with the many complex problems that are in the world? How should we be educating our youth to understand history and um, become entrepreneurs and be innovative and really deal with all these complexities that we're all facing. So I think, uh, uh, personally, I think the best way to do that is to make it experiential. Mm-hmm. I think when you have experiential things that you go through, you, the academics hook onto it in a better way. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's a really key to being able to wed the two. Because right. just having the academics and not being looking at applicability mm-hmm. doesn't make it stick. But when you put them together, I think it really sticks. Yeah. 
And, and I think that those, those moments are ones that you will, that you will hold on to. I know I hold on to mine, my educational experiential things that I did. I spent one summer, uh, uh, working with Theodore Hirschfeld um, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, doing uh, the Philadelphia Social History Project. Mm. Uh, look, and I did because of my, I was a bio major, I did all of the um, uh, census data around death or the mortality tables. Mm. Looking at, you know, slaves over a course of 40 years in four different census. And did they die? Did they did they change their names? Where did they go? And and what was their health like? Right. And uh, so you know when someone died, they did record the the cause of death. And so having to decide that, you know, pathides pulmonares was TB or pneumonia or you know that had different names in different places. Right. Uh, was important enough that I can remember it all these years. Yeah. Well, and that's also very interdisciplinary, right? Like you're taking your biological uh, knowledge and applying it to historical documents and using that to figure out what was going on here and what was this, this how does that, you know, impact the social dynamics of that era? And then we had to learn to input them into, I'm going to date myself those punch cards. Oh yeah. I've got some of those. Right. Okay. So it <laughs> yeah. was like the coding and yeah. the history and the yeah. biology all together. Yeah. Yeah. And this many years later, you still remember that and learn right. something from it. Yeah. I yeah. think we have to have education look more like that. Yeah. 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 We're, we're trying. It's, yeah. it's, it's, um, Yes, one of my favorite things to do, I teach computer science and uh, I'm always trying to combine things together. I do a lot of computer science and art and sociology. I've had students do similar sounding projects to what you just described of, you know, going out into a community or pulling some historical documents or, you know, data from the internet and then figuring out what does this tell us about these people or these, what patterns do you see using the technology to reveal something um, about society? Uh, that's not just coding for coding's sake, but trying to figure something out. So like some people said to me, well, how, I mean, when the pandemic was raging in the very beginning, they're like, well, how do I learn about it? How do I understand this? What do I, what can I do? I said, go to Johns Hopkins and take the contact tracing course. Yeah. And many of them did. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah. So yeah. they had, you know, it was a simple course to do, but they had that skill then and an understanding of that that was uh, important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to um, circle back to what you're doing now and your role as the founder and CEO of CureMark and, you know, what your research and product is there. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so, so many years years ago, I I saw a relationship um, between what the children with autism, what they ate and their, what their diets were like, uh, and maybe there being some physiology behind that. And in the course of exploring that, I was able to see that a large number of these children had a deficiency in a particular enzyme. 
So um, I formed the company. We've been around since 2008 and uh, have developed a replacement enzyme for the children and spent the last 10 years doing clinical trials. Right. And, uh, and in the course of doing that, made lots of discoveries about some other, other uh, disease processes that actually do involve the gut and the brain. And that's really the, the heart and soul of what we're doing here is to look at how the gut and the gut health and the gut um, physiology impacts the brain. Right. Uh, not necessarily in a microbiome way, but maybe one step prior to microbiome changes. Right. And so that's what we're looking at. And it started with autism. And now we see a role for what we're doing in Parkinson's and schizophrenia and other conditions. Part of running the company is is uh, putting together a patent portfolio, which we have. Mm-hmm. That's so great. We have about 400 patents globally. It's a big wow. patent portfolio. Yeah. And um, believe that we can make some changes uh, for people uh, going forward. Right. So we're hoping to um, we're hoping to, uh, uh, you know, put our application in very, very soon for uh, for the uh, indication for autism and then do other clinical trials and and all of the science forward. Yeah. Um, so when I started this, people didn't understand that gut brain thing. Uh, so 20 years ago, when I said there's a relationship here, they looked at me sort of askance. And now, of course, in the middle of this microbiome world, it's it's really kind of core. Right. So I think that it's the, the science has evolved over time. Yeah. And I think we have a lot of, of better understanding, but it's still just the tip of the iceberg. Right, right. Well, it's so interesting that, you started looking at a very, very specific thing. And then it turns out there are all these other applications or potential applications. Um, and I think that's fascinating and probably fairly typical of scientific research sometimes that you're focused on a really narrow thing. But then if you figure that out, it it broadens what it can help, what problems can be solved by that yes. research. And that's a really good point because science especially medicine is very siloed mm-hmm. right so we're we're talking about a pancreatic what they call a pancreatic exocrine insufficiency mm. but a very specific one one that had right. never been discovered before um so if you were to have a pancreatic exocrine deficiency um such as seen in cystic fibrosis Mm-hmm. which is a different kind of deficiency, you would go to a GI doctor for that. If you have pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, which is diabetes, for example, mm-hmm. you go to a different kind of doctor. Right. So you've got the same organ, right? And basic function of the same organ, two different types of doctors. Right. With different I, knowledge sets, oh, right? Right, but I think that the organ is much more integrated. Mm-hmm. They both have to do with food, right? They both right. have to do with food, ultimately. And so, but medicine has done this. Right. So what we've done is go across ways rather than down. Okay. Try, okay. Yeah, and, that's and, 
Makes yeah. sense. Right. And that's why I think what you're doing there at the school is so important because while it's based around STEM, it also gives a broad uh, education. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, you're able to go wide and deep. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a really important part of, I believe, how you can solve problems best. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I read a book uh, a while back that um, said, you know, they put like, they did an experiment. They put people with all the same, I think it was in the medical field, biology. They put people with all the same background in a room, you know, they all had the same field of study to try to solve a problem. And then they brought the same number of people, but they all had different backgrounds, different fields of study, you know, even humanities thrown in there. And the all the same homogenous group, they did not solve the problem <laughs> or it took them longer to solve the problem. And the other group solved it very quickly and creatively. Um, so you need that diversity and cross pollination to happen. Yes, you need the diversity, right? And then you need the inclusion to work together, right? Yeah. And once you can do that, and I still think that as a society, we have a we have a very wrong view about diversity. Mm. We think diversity is something that people think we should have, so we check off a box, right? But right. It's for that very reason that you're you're speaking about is why we need diversity. Yeah, because different perspectives solve problems differently right right and you can have like the checkbox version of diversity you know you can have everybody you know the right people in the room from lots of different places who look differently have different experiences but if you don't give them a voice I think you talk about this in your book if you don't make sure that they have the ability to speak up and as a leader you know your job to make sure that that happens um, it doesn't do you any good if you just have the checkbox version right Exactly. And I think that's really, it's important because it gives you uh, options. It's about Mm -hmm. optionality. Right. And if you don't have the perspectives, you don't have that optionality. Right. Right. You have one option. Right. Right. A one note kind of song. Songs are many notes, right? So you need to have that. Without that, you you don't, it's, it's, um, it's not, it's not the same. Right. Yeah. I want to ask two ending questions. Um, what uh, advice might you give to a young woman starting out now who wants to kind of go down the path that you've gone down, become an entrepreneur, um, maybe in the sciences, but doesn't have to be? What surprising, what piece of advice might you offer to her uh, that she might not be, might might not be on her radar? You know, there's the study hard in school and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, you, you, you can't listen to people, right? When someone <laughs> tells you not to do something because that's limited by their own imagination, not yours, right? right? right. So if you're going to be limited by your imagination, that's one thing, but by someone else's, that that's not a good thing. Right. And, right. and you know, I think I also speak about the golf swing, you know, people who, you know, when you make a golf swing, you have to think about 20 things before you make that swing. Mm-hmm. But when you swing, you just swing. You don't be thinking right. about, oh, I got to like swing a little differently because yeah, you integrate it all and then just go for it and not be afraid. Right. You know? and, and not to let anyone mistake your kindness for weakness, mm-hmm. because right. that's another thing that happens to women all the time. Yeah, I love that. Um, I loved reading that in your book. And I saw it again, like I've seen it. It's one of those things where you see it 
and then suddenly you see it everywhere um, right. that being warm and personable is uh, something that women tend to be when they're interacting with others and that in the business world it's seen as as weak but it's not necessarily right absolutely my brother used to say to me the bankers they don't know from b- being hugged by a client what do you mean they're being hugged they don't understand <laughs> that it makes no sense to them right right well because i'm not boisterous or yelling in a meeting or i'm listening they think that that's weakness right it's not. right it's right not. that's great and uh, finally, I wanted to ask um, who your role models are now. You know, who are you, who have you are, think of and hold in high esteem right now? So uh, the person that I think that I always held in that, in that place is Madeline Albright, mm. who we just lost, right? Right. But I did have an opportunity to spend some time with her, which I think was really uh, fabulous. And hearing her tell stories or tell stories and was the way that I imagined her to be mm. um, and uh, and how she solved problems and she solved problems in some of the most empathetic ways possible. Right. And right. Uh, so she is someone who overcame a lot and uh, had the respect of everyone. I mean, right. there people that didn't like her because she was so direct but that's what you have to be sometimes. But also yeah. with that grand amount of empathy that she had. Yeah. So I think that that uh, those combinations of things and then being able to sit with her and listen to her tell, like sitting at a table with her and listening to her that's tell amazing. stories about being with uh, Sadat and Begin and, you know, all of those things are just, are just amazing. Yeah. For me. yeah. Well, that makes sense given that you have this esteem for empathy and and right. use it yeah. so much well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me do you have any um last minute thoughts i think that if if i'm talking to young women that they just need to know that their ideas are okay whatever they are mm-hmm. and whenever i lecture to young people which i do often i just tell them this is your world now mm-hmm. This is what you need to do. You need to take the world. It's yours. Right. Doesn't belong to all the people like me, my age group, who thinks it belongs to them still. It doesn't. Right. <laughs> right? It belongs to you. And so when you do things that are different or seem different to the rest of the world, they're not. They're just your ideas. Right. And that's how we're going to make these problems go away is by they don't think. I mean, outside the box is not even the right word for them. They just don't even think that there was any any box to begin with. And and so I, I think that they have, you know, a blank piece of paper, they can write on it, and they should approach things that way. Yeah. And not be afraid of it. Right. I love that. I love the no box to begin with. They That's don't have great. a box. They just yeah. they don't have a box. Yeah. And and it it's it's just so great. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks again, Joan. I really appreciate this oh, conversation. It was me. so fun. Good luck with so the school fun. year. Thank you.